The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Please open up to Psalm 73. We continue in this three-part mini-series from the book of Psalms. To make comparisons is to be human. We make good ones. We make bad ones. And our psalm this morning exposes our hearts when we choose the latter. Psalm 73 makes reference to the heart no less than six times as it reveals the author's struggle with envy, self-pity, in bitterness as he journeys towards gaining peace and eternal perspective to see the, way, see the things the way they really are, the way God sees them. Open our eyes, O Lord, that we might behold wondrous things out of your word. Psalm 73. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, for my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment." Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked and heart, I was brutish and ignorant, I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? 
And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I might tell of all your works. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, once again I would ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Over 10 years ago, my wife and I received a Christmas letter from a college friend where he shamelessly recounted all the various places that he and his wife had visited in the past year. He was just a few years out of medical school and finally making good money, and he and his wife were reveling in their dink status, that is double income, no kids. And uh, steam was coming out of our ears as we read on and on about all the places they went, and we did this, and we saw this, and so on and so on. So we thought, wow, must be nice. Here we are, up to our eyeballs and diapers and the wear and care of raising three young children, and our friends are frolicking across the nation, taking all kinds of dream trips. So we prayed for them, <laughs> that they might have lots of children. And apparently they prayed the same for us as well. <laughs> Christmas letters, Facebook posts, and all manner of social media have become great forums for boasting and stoking envy in others. We all make comparisons on appearances, achievements, our possessions, social style, the behavior of our children. And we can hardly help ourselves unless we fixate on the comparisons that truly matter. To live well and flourish as God's people, especially in a very challenging society that's constantly titillating every desire under the sun to stoke envy, we can learn from Asaph to stop making short-sighted comparisons and to learn to make the only comparison that is necessary, the benefit of of belonging to Christ for eternity compared with the fading pleasures of this passing world. So who was Asaph? Scripture tells us that he was one of three chief choir directors serving under the administrations of King David and Solomon. There are 12 psalms credited to his name, or at least him or his followers. Apparently, he had several sons who were gifted musically like him and led Israel in corporate worship. Now, we don't know the exact situation of this psalm. We can speculate a bit that perhaps Asaph had lived under the reign of King Saul, a reign that was less just and more prone to injustice and corruption. So it's perhaps that Asaph is referring to the wicked in Israel, uh, to, to those for whom Saul turned a blind eye, or perhaps his cronies who were helping to, to uphold his fragile and insecure claim on the throne. Or perhaps this took place during David's reign when uh, Asaph was looking at the surrounding nations. 
or perhaps even those who were still holding on to pockets of power uh, within uh, the boundaries of Israel as David was trying to establish himself and to usher in reformation and repentance for God's people. This psalm opens and closes with reference to God's goodness, a, a key theme to this psalm. God is good to those who are pure in heart. The pure are genuine, authentic, faithful, committed to God. They're not perfect, but they claim the righteousness of God through faith in the perfect work of Jesus Christ. The saints are tempted, and they stumble. And we have here a friend in Asaph who humbly confesses, acknowledges his own situation of nearly stumbling and slipping. Why? He says it because he envied the arrogant. He made comparisons when he saw the prosperity of the wicked. Our aim this morning is to avoid making worldly comparisons that lead to envy and bitterness and to make eternal comparisons that lead to God's peace and everlasting joy. I believe that Asaph's problem with envy was rooted in the flawed belief that the wicked prosper but don't seem to suffer for their wrongdoing. In verses 4 through following, we get a number of pictures of the ways of the wicked who are basically fat and happy, without a care in the world. They avoid the troubles that afflict others, but not because of piety or righteousness. And it doesn't seem fair, not to Asaph and not to us sometimes, when the unrighteous are just blissful, going along, hardly taking notice or bearing the consequences of sin. We observe further in verse 6 how these people seem to ride along above the fray, untouched by the problems that touches other people. And consequently, they're proud. Proud of their carefree existence and even violent to protect their own property and interests. In verses 8 through 11, Asaph ratchets, ratchets up his accusations. For these are mockers and threateners, people who oppress the weak and the vulnerable. But worst of all, these evildoers mock heaven. And they assume the Creator is aloof if He exists at all. Is not the God of all the earth just? The wicked seem to think not. Does He not see the affliction of the righteous and hear their cry when they suffer at the hands of evildoers? Asaph was tempted to agree with the wicked. Shouldn't God's people live wealthy and healthy, carefree lives into a ripe old age? Why do afflictions fall upon the righteous who often seem to suffer more than the wicked? And don't those who call on Jesus deserve peace and affluence? In verse 13, Asaph turns his attention away from the unbeliever and becomes self-focused. In fact, he throws himself a royal pity party. He says, all in vain I have kept my heart clean. 
In verse 14, he recounts a season of suffering, affliction, being rebuked daily for his righteousness. So, what's the point of being good if you suffer for it and aren't blessed? Why pursue righteousness and suffer when the unrighteous continue in their misdeeds with impunity and get off scot-free? Like Asaph, we may be tempted to envy those who prosper, those who don't deserve it, especially those who ill deserve it. It's not fair. And when we examine our hearts, we see the core of our problem is a shaky belief in God's goodness. You see, a firm belief in the goodness of God is the only sure protection we have against the dangers of envy, feeling as though God has neglected us, of that he somehow does not recognize our efforts at righteousness. In our hearts, we just want to get what we deserve and want other people to get what they deserve. But it's with that attitude that we need to be careful, be careful of the danger of self-righteous self-pity. Because you and I are not so pure as we would like to believe or as we would like other people to believe. We're easily blinded to how blessed we truly are. And to think that if we just had a little more, we would be fulfilled. One commentator put it well. He says, For nothing is so blinding as envy or grievance. This was the nerve the serpent had touched in Eden to make even paradise appear an insult. We are vulnerable to temptation when we are overcome with envy. Young believers see pagans reveling all around them, even Christians joining in with them, and they're tempted to join as well. Godliness can wait. Wait till I'm an adult. Who wants to be lonely or bored on a Friday night? Perhaps a young person grows impatient waiting for a godly companion, and settling for a mate that does not fear the Lord. I believe the temptation is common today to conclude that it's okay to indulge in sinful desires because God will forgive me anyway. The great sugar daddy in the sky, failing to see the consequences for sin, failing to see the beauty and the glory of God's holiness, and what he calls his people to something greater than the sum of our desires. A youth, a young person might compare. Why so-and-so gets more playing time than I do while I sit the bench. Rising generation of young adults, apparently, will be the first generation, the projections say, who will not prosper economically more than our parents. First time in American history. Does this create generational envy? The young couple with a pre-born baby learns the sad news that the child suffers a genetic abnormality and will require multiple surgeries and intensive care for years throughout throughout the child's childhood, perhaps may or may not even reach adulthood. 
So the doctor, with a dignified, professional voice, confidently suggests that abortion is a reasonable option. This couple may be tempted to envy unbelievers who would not think twice about aborting such a child. The world says, why suffer heartache and trial if you can conveniently avoid it? The woman married to the man who does not make her happy may be tempted to envy non-believers and believers who choose quick and easy divorce. Older believers who have lived years of, sac- of sacrifice, maybe as missionaries, maybe giving great sums to kingdom works, now live on very modest means in their retirement years. Well, they envy friends who can afford nice trips and the perks of living in a wealthy society. They may ask, why, why do my friends' children and grandchildren live nearby while mine live halfway across the country or around the world? We compare and we compare, and we compare our state, our lot with others. In the cultural moment in which we live of great rapid change, I believe there's another temptation to envy we need to be aware of. If I had a dollar for every time someone told me that our culture is being taken over, that we need to reclaim America, I'd be a wealthy man, at least enough for Asaph to envy Yes, there are many people seeking to redefine marriage, to abandon biblical sexual ethics, who are rising in influence and power. Those of us with biblical convictions seem to be on the decline in terms of influence. Will we be envious? Will we become bitter as we see a nation continue to stumble and falter? Will we doubt God's good, wise, sovereign administration over our great country, over the world even, even as we sense things are going down the tubes? We must guard our hearts from envying the wicked and the arrogant who currently possess the megaphone of popular belief and avoid the trappings of bitterness which problem we turn to next. In verses 21 and 22, Asaph admits that making worldly comparisons made him bitter. His heart was pricked, he says in verse 21, and it bled black. Envy leads to bitterness because the heart is never satisfied. We desire good things, but we seek them in forbidden ways. We turn temporal things and make them ultimate things that can't bear the weight of expectation that only God can. Cain envied the praise of God, and in his bitterness killed his brother. Joseph's brothers envied the approval of their father, and in their spite sold their brother into slavery. Not content with his many wives, David envied with covetous greed the wife of a mere foreigner, and then killed the righteous man to cover up his misdeed. Jonah envied God's mercy on the Ninevites, and then was angry enough to die. We hear the cry of relief of Asaph in verse 22. When he comes to his senses, when he can genuinely acknowledge his brutish 
ignorant, and beastly attitude towards God, he realizes that he could have acted out like any of these others I've just mentioned. And so can you and I. Our hearts are a bottomless pit of desire and want when they are not filled rightly. We think the possessions and approval and pleasures and achievements and recognition and more will satisfy us, but they all fall short. They all disappoint in the end. We become like mere beasts, inhuman. When we demand the gifts of God on our own terms, rather than humbly receiving the gifts of God provided by his own generous hands. When we make worldly comparisons, we are trusting in sight rather than faith. How was it that Joseph was able to avoid envy of his Egyptian captors, of his brothers who were still safe and sound back in Canaan, How did he not fall into the pit of self-pity? Genesis 39 simply records repeatedly that God was with Joseph. God's presence protects us, fills us. When we hold fast to him and receive something far superior than all the pleasures and comforts this world can provide, if your heart is afflicted with envy and suffering bitterness, God can make the bitter water sweet again with a healing balm of the gospel to give you and I new perspective, to learn what it means to please God, to enjoy Him, and to serve as salt and light in a decaying culture. Well, the turning point for Asaph came when he entered into the house of worship, into the holy presence of God in the sanctuary, which at that time was a tent. He came to his senses to make right comparisons. He had seen, had made comparisons of how the arrogant have now and what he had, but begins a shift to look to the future at Judgment Day and beyond. Believing that God is just, Asaph gained a new perspective on their Destinies. Those who take all their pleasures now, the judge of all the earth can make fall into everlasting ruin. They will be destroyed in a moment, swept away by terrors. You know, it's sometimes the case that wicked men like Adolf Hitler, Saddam Hussein, and Osama bin Laden get what they deserve in this life, cut down in their prime. But others live long and prosper even to a ripe old age. But they all will meet their maker. God's people receive sweet consolation from this assurance that the wicked will be called to account. But it's here that we need to draw a dire warning that the God of all the earth will judge. And we need to make sure that we are truly in the faith holding fast to the Lord Jesus Christ and not to our own works, not mere play-acting as behaviors and not true believers. There will be many people in hell who were not wicked in the world's eyes, 
Many were law-abiding citizens, even good neighbors. But without the blood of Christ applied to hearts by faith, they will suffer for the sins of their pride and unbelief. Sinner, take warning and fly to the only refuge in heaven and on earth, the safety of the cross. In the hands of the one who was truly righteous, who fulfilled all the duties of the law in our place, who suffered the punishment that satisfied the holy requirements of God, all that we deserve, and satisfied by the Lord Jesus Christ. Making right comparisons. And by making these comparisons, Asaph begins to see the end, not only the end of the wicked, but his own glorious future. All that he had taken for granted, he now expresses with newfound amazement in verse 23, that he is continually with the Lord, who holds his right hand. God had never left him, even when the wicked prospered, even when his own fortunes seemed small. He expresses gratitude for God, who guides him with counsel, who indeed will receive him in the glory. Old Testament believers had but a dim view of the afterlife, but they knew their God was the God of the living. Heaven is where God is in his eternal presence. And you and I can taste heaven even when the whirlwind wreaks havoc around us. Asaph reaches the climax of his great comparison in verse 25 when he writes, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. God asks the question in Isaiah 40, 25, To whom will you compare me? The riches of the world are but a drop in the bucket compared to the riches of God in Christ. There are many good and legitimate things in this world that we can live without. We can live a God-filled and fulfilling life without Fill in the blank. Wealth, health, security, dream vacations, marriage, children, grandchildren, or fruitful ministry. These are not wrong desires, but they can become the ultimate things that compete for allegiance with the one desire that must rule all others, the desire for the presence of God in this life and the life to come. Whether having suffered or anticipating suffering, Asaph goes on to write in verse 26, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Like Job's great statement of faith, Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. Asaph expresses faith, a trust, of resting in the goodness of God, that God will be his portion forever, even when his body fails. Paul, the apostle, understood this well and adds his own perspective in Romans 8 when he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Making the right comparisons means not obsessing over our circumstances, but fixing our eyes on what is unseen, the rest and the secure promises of God. 2 Corinthians 4 says, So we do not lose heart. 
Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day for this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We weigh the gains and the losses of this life, and they are all found wanting compared to the joy that is ours to be had in Jesus Christ. Paul again says, Indeed, I count everything as loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. In the home I grew up in, we had a running joke. Whenever someone would return home from shopping, especially if it was at a garage sale, we would ask, well, did you find something that you couldn't live without? There are many things that we desire that are no better than a tacky souvenir. Sometimes God spares us. Sometimes he lets us have it. But in the end, none of them are worth comparing to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. Lord, when we fix our eyes on glory, we discover that there are many things that we can live without. And when we abide in Jesus, we learn there are many undesirable things that we can live with. There are things that we desire, that we obsess over for a time, but later reach the mature conclusion that it was not God's best for us. A young man may desire a woman who is not interested, but later appreciate the goodness of God to provide him a wife who is a much better fit. The job that you thought was perfect, that you interfered for with all your heart, only to be rejected, maybe eliminated a short time later, making you more grateful for the steady job you took in its place. Perspective. We all need the long view. And God can give it even through life's challenges and temptations. Seek him. Take refuge in him. And may you cry with Asaph, who once again said, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Let us pray. Gracious God, our Father, our portion, our strength, our refuge forever. You alone are worthy of our deepest longings and desires. May you fill us, may you satisfy us, may you make us great witnesses of your greatness and your glory to a watching world. Be with us as we depart this place, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.